Well, I don't know about you, uh, but I personally would love to spacewalk. Can you imagine spacewalking? Uh, but not without a tether. Not without a tether would I like to spacewalk. Uh, this man here on February 3rd, 1984, this is a, an astronaut by the name of Bruce McCandless. Uh, and he stepped out of the space shuttle and made the first untethered uh, spacewalk in the history of, uh, of our exploration of space. And all he had with him on his back was this jet propulsion pack uh, that was supposed to be able to steer him uh, back toward the shuttle. Now, realize that because the shuttle and McCandless himself are, were in orbit around the Earth, they're both moving with the speed of the Earth. So about 18,000 miles uh, they are moving at, uh, according to the Earth's rotation. So at those speeds, there is no margin for error whatsoever. Uh, so there is risk that McCandless could drift away uh, from the space shuttle, uh, never to be able to, be, uh, to, to, to get back. And in that case, his oxygen would have expired and he would have suffocated and he would still be floating around in space uh, without being able to get back to uh, his spacecraft. Now, to me, that's terrifying. Uh, I wouldn't mind spacewalking, but I want to be tethered to the spacecraft so that if there's trouble, it can reel me back in. That's how I want to roll when I'm in space. So uh, the space shuttle is life, right? And to be connected to it is life. Uh, to be disconnected from it uh, for too long, well, that's death. Uh, and so today, we're going to talk about us being connected uh, to the only source of life, uh, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the vine. To be disconnected from him is death, and to uh, have life, we must abide in him. So why John? Why today? Uh, Easter is only two weeks away, uh, as you know, and so we're taking a break from our study in Mark uh, to prepare our hearts for Easter. And uh, last year, as I'm sure you all remember with crystal clear clarity, uh, we started a study uh, in the Upper Room Discourse, which we call John 13 through 17. Uh, and uh, we got through uh, John 13 and 14 uh, last year. So the Upper Room Discourse is Jesus' last words to his apostles, his final teaching, his final encouragement, his final prayer before he was crucified the next day. And so uh, since we're going to jump into John chapter 15 today, I just want to do a quick review of John chapter 13 and 14 so you all remember uh, where we are in this upper room discourse. Uh, remember, in John chapter 13, Jesus gathered his disciples together for this final uh, Passover meal, uh, and this is the event that we call the Last Supper now. Uh, but during the Passover meal, as it was for them then, uh, Jesus filled a, a wash basin with water, and he took that basin and moved from disciple to disciple, washing each one of their feet. And after he finished doing that, he predicted uh, that one of the disciples was going to betray him. Uh, and when asked, uh, he dipped a morsel uh, and handed it to Judas, indicating that he was going to be the one who betrayed Jesus. And immediately, Satan entered Ju Judas, uh, and then Satan went, I mean, Judas went out uh, to betray uh, Jesus to the Pharisees. <clears throat> and we imagined what was going on in Judas's heart. Now, here's a man who traveled with Jesus for three years. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching. He watched the effect on other people. How could he betray Jesus? And we applied that passage by uh, saying that we have to guard our own hearts because Satan is always prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Uh, and so uh, Judas leaves the room. And then Jesus announced that he too would be leaving. 
uh, to the other 11 disciples, and where he was going, they could not come. And Peter boldly declared that, that he would go anywhere with Jesus. He would lay down his life for him. And Jesus uh, then uh, informs Peter that before the rooster crows, uh, you will deny three times that you even know me. And of course, Peter was distraught by that. And the other disciples, uh, hearing the news that, that Jesus was leaving them, well, they were grieving as well. Uh, so with all this bad news uh, in John chapter 13, uh, in John chapter 14, Jesus, knowing the grief that they were feeling, knowing he was going to the cross himself, uh, he uh, takes it on himself to soothe and comfort his disciples. Uh, just like we would comfort our own children. Uh, it reminds me of this scene in Titanic. I don't know if you remember this scene. Uh, but, but there were these families in the lower decks, remember? And they, they were not going to escape. The ship was going down, uh, and they were going to go down uh, with the ship. And, and there was no hope. And there was this mother who tried to comfort uh, her two children there, uh, trying to ease them to sleep. Now, the kids sensed that something bad was going on, but they didn't know quite what it was. And their mom loved them very tenderly uh, in that moment. And Jesus did the same for his disciples. They didn't know exactly what was going on. They knew something bad was happening. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it. And Jesus uh, eased their mind with some good news. And John chapter 14 is good news. Jesus told his disciples uh, that he has prepared a place for them and that they know the way and that anyone who has seen Jesus has already seen the Father because Jesus is in the Father. Uh, that Jesus would continue his work on earth through them, through the disciples' ministry, that Jesus would send the Holy Spirit, and most importantly, from their perspective in the moment, they would see Jesus again. So I can't take time to unpack all of that. I refer you back to last year's sermon, and you can find that on our website. Uh, but Jesus's message to the disciples is a message of peace, right? That they should have peace even though their hearts were broken. My peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So Jesus's own peace is what he is trying to impart them with before he goes. And the two great threats to our peace are Satan and the world, right? Satan is always accusing us or he's always tempting us. And the world, uh, well, it can give us a spirit of fear if we're not careful. As we watch the news and see everything that's going on in the world, we can have a spirit of fear. So if we're going to have peace, we can't listen to Satan and his accusations. And we can't get troubled by what we see on the news or what we see in the world. Uh, what we do is we abide in Jesus. And that brings us to chapter 15. The message of John 14, peace. The message of John 15, abide. In abiding, that is where we find peace. Uh, the Greek word for uh, abide is the word meno, M-E-N-O in our translation. And, and your Bibles may, may use the word abide, uh, remain perhaps, stay, dwell, uh, all different words to indicate our relationship uh, with Jesus. Uh, John used this word 11 times in this chapter alone. So this is a very important concept in John and what John wants us to do uh, as he recounts what Jesus said <clears throat> John in John chapter 15. So this can be a difficult passage to understand because, as I said, he said abide 11 times. There's a lot of repetition. So we have to sort out what this abiding is. And I think the key to understanding the passage is that there are two senses of abiding here. Uh, to abide, on the one hand, means saving faith. 
uh, we abide in Jesus by believing in him, by trusting in him for our salvation. So that's one way that the word is used. And then the other way that the word is used is to describe this intimate relationship that we maintain with Jesus after we are saved. And that relationship is what's necessary for us to bear fruit after our salvation. So first we believe and then we rest in him. Uh, We trust in him. Uh, We don't forsake him for the alluring things of the world. Uh, And we don't have our confidence shaken in him by the things we see in the world. Uh, We we abide in him. And we might even sum up all of what I just said in in a word, obedience. Uh, Staying with him, never leaving his side, obeying his commandments, all of those are implied here. So uh, the two components of abiding, uh, faith and obedience, faith and obedience. And we see both in this passage. So here we see the famous metaphor of the vine and the branches. A disciple of Jesus must stay connected to Jesus. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Now, Bruce McCandless made it back to the shuttle, even though he was not connected to that shuttle, but he could not have survived long apart from that shuttle. And neither can we if we are disconnected from Jesus the vine. Now, as we study John chapter 15, you know, we'll, we'll get into the details of what John 15 says, but I want us to remember the backdrop of this whole thing, that, that, that as Jesus spoke these words, he's only hours from the cross himself. Uh, and yet here he is uh, comforting his own disciples with such tender love uh, and compassion It's as if they were going to the cross, right? And not him. He's the one going to the cross. He's going to be crucified the next day. And still here he is comforting them, teaching them uh, what they're going to need to bear fruit after his departure. So let's take a look at the first three verses of chapter 15. Uh, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, this vine metaphor was a very common metaphor for Israel in the Old Testament. Israel is often represented by a vine in the Old Testament. And there are several passages that we could look at, but I want to look at two in particular. Uh, uh, Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, uh, says this, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. So here is Israel, spoken of as the vine, positively, right? God pulled them out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness, and he planted them in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and God expected Israel to bear fruit. That's what they were supposed to do. But later in Isaiah chapter 5, we see this same imagery being used. uh, And this time Israel is the vine that does not produce fruit. Uh, Let's look at this. Uh, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved that had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a, vine, a wine vat in it. And then he expected it pr- to produce grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. Good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. 
So most often when we see the vine referred to as a symbol for Israel uh, in the Old Testament, it's a symbol for unfaithful Israel, who God wanted uh, to be a fruitful vine, but instead it produced no fruit. Now Jesus turns this metaphor around in John chapter 15 by calling himself the true vine. Uh, And so as we look at the characters in this metaphor, Jesus is the true vine. And his apostles would have understood the metaphor because they knew uh, these Old Testament passages. And I'm sure it surprised them that Jesus was calling himself the vine when Israel had been the vine so frequently uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, But Jesus here is called the true vine. That's what he calls himself. Israel had proved faithless, uh, though God had been faithful and planted Israel in the most fertile place uh, and gave Israel his divine blessing and, and protection And where Israel failed as God's vine, and because Israel failed as God's vine, Jesus came as the true vine. Now, as Jesus said in uh, chapter 14, John 14, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's a claim of exclusivity, right? There's no way to get through uh, to God except through Jesus. He is the way. Now, I want us to imagine the vine in the same way. This is a claim to exclusivity. The only way that we can bear fruit is by staying in the vine, Jesus. There is no other way that we can bear fruit uh, because Jesus is the only giver of life. So Jesus is the true vine. Now, God himself is the vine dresser. That's what Jesus called uh, the, the Father. Uh, he is the vine dresser. Now, uh, as I was getting ready to, to, to preach this sermon, I watched some YouTube videos uh, about what it's like to, to be a vine dresser, to be uh, somebody who works the vineyard. <clears throat> and boy, it is really, really hard work because uh, you have to tend each one of those vines and each one of those branches individually, and conditions have to be perfect in order for these vines to bear fruit. And most of this work is done by hand. So uh, you might find a um, you might find somebody who is uh, out there uh, in the vineyard, uh, and he's working uh, these these vines. He's creating space for each vine to. Uh, to create sunlight for each of them, to keep them off the ground so that they uh, don't get covered in pests or moss uh, or parasites, and, and, or he prunes them. So, so this is all the work of the vine dresser, and it's all done by hand, by a passionate uh, man or woman who, who wants these vines uh, to grow and to keep them healthy so that they will bear fruit. Uh, so this is God the Father. He is the vine dresser. Now, we are the branches. Uh, The branch itself uh, does not produce the fruit. It's the sap that runs from the vine to the branches that produces the fruit. The branches only bear the fruit uh, that the sap from the vine produces. And that's an important part of the metaphor because we, in ourselves, can produce no fruit. God produces the fruit through Jesus, through the vine, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We bear the fruit if we abide in the vine. And then the fruit itself, well, what is that? A a grapevine will produce grapes, right? Uh, But what do Christians produce? What is the metaphor? What what are we supposed to produce? Uh, Personal growth, I would say, is the first one. It happens within us first. Uh, The Holy Spirit will help a Christian grow in maturity and become more like Christ as the Holy Spirit uh, does this work in us, uh, producing fruit. 
Uh, Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are, these are all the things uh, that we will produce uh, and that Holy Spirit will produce in us uh, as we become uh, more attuned to him. And we have to be patient. Uh, Fruit-bearing takes time, which is another important part of the metaphor. Uh, in some of these videos that I watched, the vine dresser I was showing the difference between a 25-year-old, you know, well-established set of vines and branches that was bearing fruit every year. And then on the other hand, the, these little vines that were, were just planted, they were small and they were delicate and they weren't going to produce fruit for years. Uh, but the Father cares for them both the same way so that they will uh, one day bear fruit. And so uh, oftentimes a Christian has to mature uh, and, and, and grow up in, in him or herself uh, to become more mature, uh, to, to continue to produce this fruit of the Spirit within ourselves. So uh, there's a personal growth aspect to it. But there's also uh, uh, our influence on the world. That's another kind of fruit of the Spirit. Paul talks in, in both Ephesians and Colossians uh, about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so as we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we, we're valuing Christ above all else. We're, we're loving our spouse well. We're loving our children well. Uh, we're teaching our kids about the glory of the Savior, reflecting his love uh, to everyone that we meet and, and serving those uh, in need. And the list could go on and on. Uh, so uh, that's just some of the fruit that we produce externally. So these are the characters in the metaphor, right? We have we have Jesus the vine, we have God the vine dresser, we have us the branches, and then the fruit is, is what we produce. Now, let's see how the vine dresser handles the branches. Uh, back to uh, verses 15, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. Uh, I want to focus here on verse 2 for a second because there's an interpretive issue here. Uh, the verse says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And that's troublesome, I think, uh, to, to think about that, because it sounds like a branch in me, meaning in Jesus, uh, is, is a, a believer, uh, and that somehow God will take away a believer if he's not bearing fruit. Uh, now, all branches that are in Jesus uh, are true believers. So how can it be that, that a true believer would not bear fruit and that God would take them away? Uh, that, sounds, that sounds scary. That sounds like a believer can lose his salvation. But we know uh, from other passages that a believer can never lose their salvation. So what is John saying here? What, what is the rub here? Uh, there have been various solutions uh, that have been uh, proposed for this. And one is that what he's talking about here is somebody who professes faith, but is not actually a true believer, uh, who, who never actually uh, believed. People who call themselves Christians, but they don't bear fruit because they, they are not connected to the vine. They don't believe in Jesus as their Savior. They don't have the Holy Spirit, and God cuts them off. He takes them away, which is a metaphor for their judgment. Now, that is a possibility. That could be what it means. Uh, but I don't think it fits the context, which, as I say, uh, is a branch that is in me, in Jesus. So, uh, another solution is how we, we translate the word, uh, the Greek word for takes away. Now you see that in, in uh, bold up there. Uh, the word is takes away, uh, and it's from the Greek word uh, iro, iro, which, which can mean to carry away or to remove. That, that's one way that the word can be translated. But another alternate translation for this word is that it can be lift up or to raise to a higher place. 
And that's what a vine dresser frequently does as well. A vine dresser will lift up some of these vines and br or branches off the ground so that they can stay away from parasites and moss and, and pests. And he'll clean them uh, and, and, and uh, help them produce fruit. So, so if these branches are in Jesus, as verse 2 says, uh, many commentators agree uh, that it's more likely that God would rather give special attention uh, to these uh, branches that are not bearing fruit than to cut them off. He wants to encourage them to bear fruit rather than to cut them off and take them away. And I like that uh, translation of it better because uh, these are believers and God will eventually bear fruit through these believers. He will do the work necessary so that Ephesians will, according to uh, Ephesians chapter 2.10, uh, we will do the work that God prepared in advance for us to do. And I think the only way that we can do that is if he uh, tends to us like a vine dresser does. Uh, so God is not cutting off believers. Uh, he's lifting them, cleaning them, uh, and encouraging them to bear fruit. Now, for those believers who are in the vine and are bearing fruit, uh, God will prune them so they bear even more fruit. And pruning is a painful process, as you know. Uh, you've all been pruned because you're all believers and you're all bearing some fruit. Uh, we'd like to avoid pruning if we could, but we can't because God has work to do in us, right? We are not finished products. So God continues to work on our hearts, cutting away uh, those parts that, that are not bearing fruit and, and lead to choking out uh, fruit, perhaps. Uh, he's, he's cutting away uh, unfruitful thoughts and, 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 and uh, things that will not produce uh, that inhibit fruit bearing uh, so that more fruit will, will grow. And that's what he wants from us. Now, it's interesting here that there is a, a word play uh, that, that, uh, that John uses here. It's interesting because the word for prune is cathiro. Do you see that? See the word play, iro and cathiro? Uh, God lifts up uh, the unproductive branches and he cleans them and he tends to them. And then he prunes the branches that are already bearing fruit. And the result in either case is that more fruit will be produced. And then in verse 3, there's even another word play because Jesus told his disciples that they were already clean because of their faith in him because of the word that he had spoken. And the word for clean is katharos. So we have these three words that are all intimately related together, lifting, pruning, uh, cleaning, enabling uh, these disciples to bear fruit because they have been made clean already uh, by Jesus and by the vine dresser. So that's how uh, the, these vines are able to bear more fruit. But we have a responsibility ourselves. What about us as the branches? Well, our calling is to abide. Let's look at it in verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so <clears throat> what do we see here? Except that the complete dependence of the branches on the vine. If you buy your wife a dozen roses, and men from time to time, you ought to do that. Buy your wife a dozen roses. When you do that, you bring home actually 10 dead flowers to her. Do you know that? 
They look beautiful. They look amazing, but they're already dead because they've already been cut from the vine. Uh, so it takes a few evidence for the, for the evidence of death to appear, right? In a few days, they'll wilt and the, the, the petals turn black and they start to droop and, and, uh, and the leaves fall off. So they will look pretty for a while, but these flowers are already dead. And that's because they've already been cut off from the vine. And so it is with us. While we abide in the vine, we can and we will bear fruit. And so this abiding concept, again, is faith plus obedience. Faith plus obedience. Faith means trusting in him, trusting in Jesus for our salvation. Obedience means that we continue to seek to do his will through the Holy Spirit who is living in us. And when we stay connected to him, uh, we will want to spend time with him. We'll be growing spiritually. We'll be loving Jesus more. We'll carve out time in our day uh, to be with him uh, and to develop a relationship with him. And, and then God's love for us will overflow out of us. It'll spill out onto others as well. Uh, all these things will happen uh, as we abide in the vine. Now, if we choose not to stay connected to the vine, uh, to choose material things in the world over uh, the spiritual things of God, uh, we will not bear fruit. Uh, we can do nothing on our own. So only through God's power, continually at work through us, will we bear this fruit. It's the only way we can do anything productive. And we're told in other passages that we can grieve the Holy Spirit and we can quench the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we have a role to play in this. Uh, only if we continually abide uh, will we bear fruit. Now, notice the mutuality of the relationship in verse 5. Uh, the relationship is mutual. He who abides in me and I in him. Uh, so we, as we abide, Jesus abides in us, right? And so that is how we receive this life-giving power. He continues to supply us with this ability uh, to bear fruit. And so we only need to abide. And as we move into verses 6 to 8, uh, John kind of highlights our choice here, that we have a choice uh, to abide and not to, or not to abide, uh, re recounting Jesus' words. Uh, and so we can abide or not abide, and there are consequences to each. Uh, so this is verses 6 to 8. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So I want you to notice here that, that it's not the failure to bear fruit that results in being gathered and burned. It's the failure to abide in Jesus that results in, in gathering and being burned, right? So not believing in Jesus. This is, this is the sin of unbelief. Uh, and when we, we don't abide in the faith sense of the, of the word, in the trusting for our salvation sense of the word, uh, that person is thrown away as a branch. In verse 2, the branch was in Jesus. He wasn't bearing fruit, but God lifts it up and helps it uh, bear fruit, and God will produce fruit in a believer. Uh, but this branch in verse 6 symbolizes the unbeliever, that person who is not in Jesus. And so uh, this unbeliever may profess to be a Christian, or he may not, uh, but either way, he's rejected uh, the source of life. He is not clean, and he can bear no fruit, and the tragic result of this all is judgment. Now, for believers, as I said earlier, uh, abiding is faith plus obedience. It's salvation, and it's our ongoing abiding in faith so that we bear fruit. And if we believe and we abide, it's as though nothing will be impossible for us. We can ask anything we wish, right? And God will grant that. 
Now, that's not a blank check, right? That's not anything, anything. It's the context of this is, is bearing fruit uh, and being in God's will as we bear fruit and being connected to the vine. So that is the context. The context is bearing fruit. So the limitation on the anything is that if we're asking something uh, of God that will further his kingdom or, or grow us spiritually and bring him glory, uh, God will answer that request. And God answers prayer, and that glorifies him because it shows that we have faith in the one who is able to answer prayer. And when we ask for things that glorify God in accordance with God's will, well, God will be glorified. And bearing fruit is the proof that we are his disciples. So are we his disciples? The proof is in how we live. The proof is in the fruit we bear. Uh, there is a progression of fruit bearing as we see throughout this passage. Did you notice it as we went by? Uh, we bear fruit in verse 2. And then later in verse 2, we bear more fruit. And then in verse 5 and verse 8, we bear much fruit. The more we abide, the more fruit we bear. So are you abiding in him? Are you producing any fruit? Are you producing some fruit? Are you producing more fruit? Are you producing much fruit. Uh, the more we abide, the more fruit we will produce. Uh, so we're already clean by the word of faith in Christ, as he said in verse 3. But now that we are clean, uh, we continue to bear fruit by abiding in his love, uh, which is a new concept that John is introducing here uh, in verse 9 through 11. Just as the Father has loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So here's where the obedience comes in. The, the proof of our obedience is in our obedience to his commands. Now, I don't really think there's any meaningful distinction between abiding in Jesus and abiding in Jesus' love. Uh, you know, to abide in Jesus is to abide in his love, right? Jesus is love, uh, since he is God and God is love. So uh, it's the same concept. Uh, but Jesus obeys the Father's commands, and then we obey his commands, uh, and this is how we continue to abide. Now, you know how this works in your parental relationships, right? Uh, you, you tell your kids, you know, don't get in the car with strangers, don't put your hand on the hot stove. Uh, we tell them these things because we love them and we don't want them to get hurt. Uh, and hopefully they show their love for us by trusting us enough to obey, even though they may want to disobey, uh, they, they would obey these rules. And so when we keep God's commandments, we are saying, God, I, I trust you. I, I may not understand everything that you're telling me or why you're telling me uh, to do these things, but, but I trust you even when it's hard because I love you and I trust you. And so this is the obedience component of abiding. Now, I want us to see the result of this in, in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You see, these rules aren't meant to oppress us and make us miserable. They're meant to give us joy, full joy. Now, I, I spent some time thinking about that this week, uh, what it would mean to have full joy uh, in Jesus. Uh, for most of us, and I'd be uh, the first one to raise my hand, uh, we don't always find our joy in Jesus. We find joy in other things. Uh, uh, for me, uh, I find joy in the comfort of, and security of owning a house and knowing that I have a place to live, uh, knowing that I have a car that, that most times gets me from, from here to there. Um, 
I take joy in, in my position here, that, that God has called me to be a pastor and to minister to this flock and to study and preach his word uh, every week. What an incredible blessing. Uh, I'm comforted that there's food in the refrigerator. I take joy in that, that I know where my next meal is coming from and that I have enough money to pay my bills and uh, I'm in pretty good health and, and I have a great marriage and I have two wonderful kids. Uh, I can take joy and, and pleasure in these things. But what happens if those things are taken away, right? Uh, like Job. Job lost everything, right? What, what if I lost my job here some, somehow? Uh, what if I lost my house? What if I lost my car? What if, what if I were, uh, fell on hard times and didn't have enough food to eat? Or I were diagnosed with some disease <clears throat> that was going to be difficult uh, to cure? What if my marriage was falling apart? What if my kids weren't doing well? You know, any of these things can happen, right? Because everything in life, everything that's material is fleeting. It's a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. So would I have joy? Would I have this kind of joy? My joy may be in you and my joy made full if I lost all of those things. Is Jesus enough for me? Is he enough for you? These are hard questions, aren't they? When, when the source of our joy uh, is in other things, uh, we're not necessarily abiding in him, uh, we're abiding in the other things that give us joy. And I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy these things. Of course we should. God has given us all things to enjoy. I just mean that our, our, our joy has to be found in Jesus first. Uh, and these other things are byproducts of what Jesus uh, has done for us. Uh, our, our, our joy is in Jesus first and not the fleeting things in life that can so easily be taken away. So this fullness of joy is found in Jesus uh, abiding, which is faith plus obedience. And I think this is something uh, that we uh, really need to search our hearts about. I know that I do. Uh, I don't want my relationship to Jesus uh, to be conditional on the things he provides, right? That, that I'm happy with Jesus, my joy is found in him as long as he's taking care of my, my personal uh, physical needs. Uh, I want my life to be focused on him, connected to him, no matter what he provides. Uh, like Job said, uh, blessed be the Lord, right? He giveth, he taketh away. Blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, so I confess I have work to do. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing that many of you might have work to do in that area too. This is hard uh, to place all our faith and hope in Jesus and to abide in him uh, so that we uh, find our full joy in him. So let's think about some applications as we wrap this up. Uh, abide in his love is the first thing I would say. <clears throat> and I just want to talk about the love of Jesus, the love that we are abiding in. Uh, this is what Jesus said to his disciples only hours before he was going to be crucified, uh, arrested, tortured first. Uh, how great is Jesus' love for his disciples and for us uh, that he would give the disciples these comforting words uh, as his last words to them, uh, even think, considering this incredible personal stress uh, that he was undergoing. Uh, and so uh, he was going to allow himself to be handed over to sinful men to torture, beat, and kill him, uh, to save us from the penalty of, this, uh, from the penalty of sin that, that we owe. So uh, Jesus' love is, is it's really... It's awesome. I mean, there are times when that word is not appropriate, and there are times when that word is the only word there is. His love is awesome. It is so great for us when we consider it. So when he tells us to abide in his love, it's because he is the source of life, and we are as dead without him as we would be if we were left out of a space shuttle without a spacesuit and had no way to get back, uh, like Bruce McCandless would have been if he couldn't get back to the shuttle. We have to abide in Jesus. He is the source of life.
Well, how do we do it? Well, as we've been saying all along, uh, faith plus obedience equals abiding. So first we believe, and then next we continually surrender to Jesus. Just continually surrender. Talk to him. Tell him that you trust him, that you know his will is best. Uh, you have conversations with your friends. You can have the same kind of conversation with Jesus. Uh, tell him the things that you're upset about, the things that make you happy, the things you're worried about. He's always listening. And as we trust him, as we surrender, and as we pray, we draw on this life-giving sap, right, that, that comes from the vine into us as the branches. And we obey him as the proof of our love. It means that we pray, we know his character and nature, and we want to do things his way. And we can be content regardless of our situation if we are abiding in him. And this obedience shows uh, our harmony with him, that we are living in concert with the one who created us. And so when you love God and when you're grateful to God for all that he provides, obedience is not hard. It's just allowing the Holy Spirit uh, to have control of your life, uh, to live it out and to follow his lead. And there's no greater joy than that according to uh, verse 11. There is no greater joy. Your joy will be made full. So this is an audience participation part of the sermon. Do you believe that? Yes. Do you really believe that? Yes. If you do, then you have to go and live it out, right? Put it, setting aside the things of the world and finding our hope in Christ, finding our hope in Christ alone and abiding in him. That was Jesus's message to the disciples, and it's his message to us today. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, this is a tough call. Uh, you, you have asked us to, to uh, forsake everything uh, to follow you. And Lord, uh, you have graciously provided material things for us uh, so that we can live. Uh, but our joy has to be in you and in you alone, Lord. So we thank you for what you, pro you provide for us. But Lord, may we always remember that you are the source of all things, everything that we need for this life here and for life eternal. So, Lord, we submit to you, we surrender to you, uh, we, we pledge to abide in you and not to abide in the things of the world. And, Lord, we just uh, pledge our love to you and gratitude for what you've done for us by dying on the cross for our sins. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.